friends, welcome. This is episode 69 of the Syracuse Sports Podcast. My name is Brent Axe. It is great to have you here. Boy, we all have Michael Jordan fever once again. Ah, The Last Dance, the terrific documentary ESPN has put out about the 1997-98 Bulls. Really the legacy of Michael Jordan and that dynasty. We're going to talk today with David Falk, Syracuse University grad, of course, the namesake of the David Falk School of Sports Management at Syracuse University, and Michael Jordan's agent there from the beginning throughout Jordan's playing career, how Jordan established himself as a player, a brand, and how a game of Pac-Man showed Falk just how competitive Jordan was. We'll talk to David Falk about all of it, plus his connections to Syracuse, his love for Syracuse, and a very interesting fact about Falk. Through all the years, he's never represented a Syracuse basketball player. How about that? It's all coming up with one of the greatest agents in the history of the game, David Falk, who represented Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, and so many more. It's interesting when you look back on the links between Syracuse and Michael Jordan. He played Syracuse twice in his playing career. Once... January 8th, 1983, this game was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and North Carolina beat Syracuse 87-64. to Jordan led the Tar Heels with 18 points, shooting 8 of 15. Brad Doherty with 15 points, Matt Doherty with 13 points, Sam Perkins with 12. Eric Sanifer had 24 points for Syracuse in that game, but everybody else had a bad day. Gene Waldron just with 9 points, Leo Routens with 6, Raphael Addison with 6 points. It was later that year when Syracuse played North Carolina once again, this time at the Carrier Dome, in a game also won by the Tar Heels by a final score of 87-64. to Once again, Jordan led the way for North Carolina with 19 points in that game. Sam Perkins and Matt Doherty with 16, Brad Doherty with 12. Kenny Smith now on the North Carolina Tar Heels with 11 points in that game. You know who was on the floor that night for Syracuse? Dwayne Pearl Washington had an okay game, eight points on the night, shooting just three of 11 from the field. It was Raphael Addison who led Syracuse with 18 points on the night, a mix of Sean Karens, Andre Hawkins, Gene Waldron scoring eight points that night as well. It was later that year when North Carolina returned to the Carrier Dome, this time in the NCAA Regional. You may have seen the footage in the last dance of Jordan practicing in the Dome before the Tar Heels eventually lost to Georgia, who went on to their first Final Four that year. And that was NC State, Jim Valvano running around looking for somebody to hug to think that Michael Jordan and the Tar Heels could have been in that Final Four with him. Nope, they didn't make it, losing in the Carrier Dome. It was the year before that, in 1982, when Jordan's Tar Heels beat Patrick Ewing's Georgetown Hoyas in the national championship game. Both Jordan and Ewing eventually would be represented by our guest today, David Falk. In 1992, Jordan and the Bulls returned to the Carrier Dome, this time with the Chicago Bulls. Now remember, this was 1992. This was the summer of the Dream Team. And there was talk, despite all the tickets that had been sold and all the hype and buildup of a Nets-Bulls matchup, Derek Coleman on the New Jersey Nets at the time. That Jordan might not show up. He wanted a little more rest after a pretty busy summer of winning a gold medal in Barcelona. But Jordan showed up. 28,000 fans plus saw the show, and Jordan was impressed by what he saw. Saying this about his time at the Carrier Dome. Quote, you guys are great basketball fans. Believe me when I say that. The Carrier Dome is great. I can't promise anything, but I'll try to come back someday. 
Well, Jordan did come back to Syracuse someday. Not as a player, though, as a father, as his daughter Jasmine graduated from the David Falk School of Sports Management at Syracuse University. And eventually, Jasmine married Rakeem Christmas, a former Syracuse basketball player. They made Michael a grandfather a couple of years back. So plenty of connections between Jordan and Syracuse. And we talked to the biggest one of all right now. His former agent, David Falk, joins us now on the Syracuse Sports Podcast. Let's take a look. So, David, it's it's interesting because there is an insatiable appetite for Michael Jordan content. There always has been, even, what, 20-some-odd years later after he's played. But we're getting this new perspective on it because there's this footage that is in this Last Dance documentary that maybe people haven't seen, a behind-the-scenes perspective on it, all these new interviews, and just kind of a renewal of what Michael Jordan is and what his legacy is. What are we going to see that maybe you knew all along about Michael Jordan, the athlete, and Michael Jordan overall? Well, Michael grew up at an age before social media, and um, he never really felt, as an extremely confident person, he never really felt the need to explain himself. Uh, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, I actually thought he was going to get up and say thank you and sit down. And uh, I actually think he was going to do that. The last minute, he changed his mind and he gave a very, very personal, insightful speech of how he motivated himself to stay at the top of his game for so long. And typically, um, a lot of people misinterpreted his remarks. They thought he was being arrogant or egotistical. You know, he's being extremely personal. Um, and you know, it's very hard for people to understand an athlete like Tiger Woods or Michael or you know maybe Brady, someone's at the top of the game for a very long time. You've made a lot of money, you've got a lot of recognition, you won a lot of championships. You know what keeps you going? And Michael found ways to keep himself highly motivated and explain them. And I think over the next eight episodes of this documentary, you're going to see, you know, a Michael Jordan, not in his twenties coming out of Carolina, but in his thirties, uh, knowing that his time is limited. He only has a few years left when he's going to be at the peak of his abilities to win more rings. And as he explained in the first couple episodes, the only thing that motivated him was to win. It wasn't scoring titles. It wasn't MVPs. It wasn't Twitter followers or, you know, endorsement bunnies. It really was just winning. And everything flowed from the winning. I think today, a lot of young athletes have it backwards. And they're worried about their brand, which they don't even own. Uh, and they're worried about their social media impact. And I, I think that everything that is genuine flows from winning. David, I think we got an early sense of that in the first two episodes that aired Sunday night when we saw in 86 how there they were on the brink of either making the playoffs or maybe Chicago wanted to you know, get a better draft position in the lottery. And Michael Jordan was just incredulous that they would think of anything other than winning. When was your first real sense of just how driven he was as an athlete? I mean, obviously, you watch him play. All athletes are inherently competitive. I think that the the elite athletes that I've watched over the last 45 years, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Magic Johnson, Hakeem Olajuwon, LeBron, Kobe, for sure, um, in basketball, you know, you could probably have Roger Federer, you know, Tom Brady. Those guys have a different gear. 
Um, it's sort of like in their DNA is a gene from the Terminator. And whether you paid them a dollar or a trillion dollars, they just want to tear your heart out and beat you. Um, it's just a gear. The first time I really saw that was the summer of Michael's rookie year. The end of his rookie year, he came to my home in, in Bethesda, and I bought a Pac-Man machine. And uh, I, I played it quite a bit and got pretty good. I thought, I thought I was pretty good. He came to my house. We played it. He saw it. So let's play. So I, I kicked his butt the first couple of times we played. <laughs> he said, go, let's play again. And I'm on, I'm, you know, playing with the joystick and, and he's going, look out, look out, look out. And I you know, got eaten. And, and I said, MJ, am I talking to you while you're playing? And he stuck his finger in my chest hard. <laughs> and he said, no, but I'm going to win. And that's just the way he is. He's that way playing pool. He's that way playing golf. He's that way. He's just an extremely competitive human being, but in a very nice way. I mean, it's affectionate. I mean, he, you know, uh, obviously we're not playing for the world championship of Pac-Man. And Michael's an extremely uh, generous person. He's an amazing friend. If he, you see that, that's one of the things that pops out, I think, in the, in the doc is his extreme sense of loyalty. Um, he was loyal to Phil. He was loyal to the team, you know, um, extremely loyal to Carolina, amazing and loyal to me for in my entire career. And that's all you can ask. You know, you work hard, you try to do a good job, and the loyalty that he exhibits makes you want to work twice as hard. When you were starting to brand Michael, when you first landed him as a client, it, it seemed like there, were, there was a buildup there, and you had represented some people in tennis, and, and ProServe had represented some people in tennis, and it was normal in that world to have your own shoe and have your own gear. How much of what you modeled for, for Michael came from that experience in, in tennis and, and some things that had led up to that? Yeah, a lot of it. I mean, it was an evolution for me. When I, when I started representing Michael, I was 33 years old. I'd been in the business already for 10 years. I'd worked with some very outstanding basketball players like Adrian Daly, who's the Hall of Fame, and Phil Ford, John Lucas, the number one pick in the draft, James Worthy, he's one of the top 50 players of all time. Uh, I was representing John Thompson. Um, and so everything I had learned, fortunately, gave me um, you know, a, a confidence that that I could do a good job for Michael. And, you know, right away, I mean, like, literally the first game in New York City in November of 84, he did a, a cuff dunk in Patterson Square Garden. I mean, he had the fans energized from, literally from day one, from the Olympics on. And it puts a certain amount, it's a challenge to me, you know, to try to bring the best I have to give him, you know, because he deserves it. He's working He's working hard. He's immensely talented. Um, he's loyal. He's a great client. He listens. He's smart. Um, and it just, it gives you an incredible sense of motivation and a challenge to bring everything you've been taught, everything you've learned, all your instincts to bear, you know, to try to, to try to do off the court for him or, and in business, what he's doing on the court. David, what was your path like? To I want to discuss uh, your path to Syracuse a little bit here. When you, you think back on it and you were deciding what you wanted to do, where you wanted to go to college, how was it that you landed on coming to Syracuse? Well, that's really a simple question to answer. I applied to four Ivy League schools in Syracuse. I think I applied to Syracuse. My best friend 
Reed Kahn, who's a lawyer in New York, uh, we've been best friends since the ninth grade. His guidance counselor told him to apply to Syracuse for his day school. And my guidance counselor told me to apply to the University of Pennsylvania for my day school, which I thought was, you know, applying to an Ivy League school. I had really good credentials. was a little bit, you know, a little bit didn't seem so safe to me. So <laughs> I, applied, I applied to Syracuse. I applied like on a Tuesday. I literally got it the next day. And they had started an honors program for people like me that were sort of Ivy League rejects. And over the last 50 years, I visited a lot of schools. I spoke at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you know, Duke, and the tons of schools all around the country. And, you know, what you learn about colleges, what I've learned, um, is that a lot of it is branding, it's marketing. So I knew I wanted to be a lawyer probably since I was in the fifth grade. I came to Syracuse and tend to major in political science. And when I rushed a fraternity my first year, some of the upper class said, David, political science is only useful if you teach major in economics. So I switched to major in economics. And by a fluke, the Maxwell School at Syracuse is ranked in the top three for the last 40 years in social sciences. They're amazing in economics. Um, and I had an amazing experience um, uh, in economics, I, I had to do an honors thesis as a junior about inflation theories. I interfaced with Michael Boskin, who was on the President's Council of Economics Advisors. And so for me, you know, had I gotten my wish in high school and gone to Cornell, I can't imagine I would have gotten as good an education in economics. Cornell's a great school, but Syracuse has um, the Newhouse School in Communications, which is the number one school in the country in electronic journalism, Maxwell School, the IT school is amazing. My friend Jeffrey Rubin, um, and you know, thankfully, the Fall College in Sports Management is you know one of the top, if not the top, program in the country under the amazing leadership of Michael Feely. So, um, it, you know, it's it's the only school I got into. I look back and think it was a it was a stroke of fate. Um, I met my wife, Rhonda, at Syracuse when I was a junior. My daughter, Jocelyn, went to Syracuse. Uh, I have tremendously enjoyed, you know, the relationship with the university, both as a member of the Board of Trustees and as the founder of the Fall College. And um, it's all, for me, um, a tribute to my mom, who was a teacher. You know, I've decided to put my success in business to work in education. Uh, as opposed to cancer research or, you know, solving the problem in the rainforest or, you know, something else. Education gives me a tremendous feeling of, that I'm giving back something not only to the students, but to my mom, who is my mentor, my life's mentor. David, every student that comes through the School of Sports Management has, has a certain goal, certainly, and something they want to achieve. But if there was something universal that you hope they take out of the experience, what, what would that be? Well, that's, that's the perfect word experience. Michael Veely and myself uh, and our amazing, we have an amazing board of advisors. We have David Lee, who's been the head of Turner, Sandy Montag, who's the top broadcast journalist in the country, um, Pam Hollander's the head of marketing for Allstate, um, Brandon, Stott, Brandon Steiner's the current chairman of the board. I mean, I could go on and on. We have 25 really talented people from the world of sports to sit on an advisory board. And we decided at the, at the initial introduction of the program that we didn't want to, any, you can go to any college in America and read textbooks about marketing or about sports management, but we have practitioners. And 
we brought in Rick Burton, who's the David Falk professor of sports, who's like a rock star. We brought in um, Dennis Dedinger from the, from the Newhouse School to, t- to teach media. We brought in Rodney Paul to run the analytics division. He's like a rock star. And so we want people who aren't theorists, but they're practitioners, and they can teach the students from their own education. Dennis Dedinger has won three Emmy Awards at ESPN. Rick Rick Burton was the commissioner of the Australian Basketball League. He was the head of the Warsaw School of Sports Management at Oregon. He was the head of marketing for the U.S. Olympic Committee. So when he, when these people teach the students, they're not only giving them academic grounding, they're giving them an insight to their own personal experiences in business. And that's my personal theory of education is that you've got to get out of the classroom and you've got to learn your craft. And um, I think that's what the program is dedicated to doing. I think that's what it is doing. I travel all over the country and I bump into students that are graduates of my program, um, you know, that are in the field now. Um, you know, one of my dearest friends in Washington, Bruce Levinson, his daughter-in-law, Samantha Levinson, graduated in 11. Uh, a young guy, Cody Barbudo, working for the Spurs. Uh, you know, just different people I bump into all the time. Uh, and they come up to me and say, thanks. You know, the program really put me in a great position, uh, you know, to market my skills. And, uh, and so it makes me incredibly proud. I got to ask you, David, as a Syracuse guy, uh, having represented John Thompson and Patrick Ewing, and and you, you land those guys in the heart of the the Syracuse Georgetown rivalry, and, and it only grew from there. Did you get any uh, considerable, uh, you know, anybody bust your chops on that through the years? What did oh. what did those guys think about having a Syracuse guy as their rep? Well, the irony is, in my entire career, I've never represented a player for Syracuse. I mean, it's incredible. My own How school, about that? yeah, um, and. Uh, you know, I have an extremely close relationship with John Thompson. I always say publicly that, well, my mom is my life's mentor. John is probably the most influential man in my life that I've ever met. I love the man. And, um, you know, we represented virtually every major player from Georgetown from 1980 on. And um, it's been a tremendous experience for me. I did take a tremendous amount of flack early on. Having gone to Syracuse undergrad, George Washington Law School, you know, representing the Georgetown coach and his son, John III, and many of the players. Um, and the players know I love Syracuse. Um, uh, but, you know, I've had a, I've had an extremely um, enjoyable, beneficial relationship with a lot of the, the Georgetown players, a really, really great group of guys. And um, Patrick... Kembe, Alonzo, um, Jeff Green, Roy Hibbert, Greg Monroe, Otto Porter, like really quality people. They come from an extremely disciplined, you know, program. Uh, you know, John Thompson and the son, like, you know, extreme education was, was highlighted. So I have I've tremendously enjoyed, you know, my affiliation with the Georgetown basketball program. We've had a similar relationship with Duke. Uh, North Carolina in the early days, Indiana with Coach Knight. Um, and I really missed that. I missed the time when the coaches um, preempted recruiting, when the business was clean and you could walk in at the end of the year and put, make a presentation to a player based on your credentials, your experience, your track record. You know, today it, it's so corrupted. And I'm not angry about it. It's just it's disappointing. Um, 
I think the Players Union has done a woeful job in policing the rules that they created in 1986 to keep the business, you know, honest. And, uh, you know, I thank God for my run. I had a great run. I would, I would not, uh, you know, if I could change and, and go back, I, I wouldn't change my approach. I mean, I've told many people, you know, if I could sign every player in the first round this year and pay them a penny each, I'd pass. You know, that's, that's like a line in the sand. I will never pay a player to, to manage it. And it makes it extremely difficult in the current environment, you know, to sign the star players. And I'm fine with that. You know, it would be a tremendous sign of disrespect to me, to people like Michael and Patrick and Elton Brand, another you know, very special player of my life, Juwan Howard, uh, you know, Coach Thompson. It, it would be like a mark of disrespect you know, to, to start paying players. So uh, people say I'm old school, and they're damn right, and I'm proud of it. David, on that note, this will be my final question for you. Where are we going here? You mentioned, you know, the, the debate about name, image, and likeness and paying players. Maybe the one-and-done rule goes away here in the next couple of years. It seems like as much as things have changed to this point, we, we've got more on the way, and, of course, the world is changing before our very eyes with everything happening with coronavirus here. So, where do you think the relationship between college basketball and the NBA is going and how that dynamic is going to work going forward? Well, I've been a very strong opponent of players coming out early. In 45 years, I've never once recommended to a player to leave school early. I think that, you know, I think that the, the talent of the players increases every year, but the skill level is decreasing. I think the European players who practice more um, you know, actually your pros earlier, um, you know, come into the league with better skills. Donsich is a great example of that. Nowitzki is a great example of that. Um, so I don't believe in the one and dones. And I think when we go back and let high school players come out early, I think it's going to make it, it's going to make it even worse. Um, but it is what it is. I've voiced my opinion. I'm a minority. I'm in the minority on that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think it's unfortunate, and I think what's going to happen in college basketball is that um, is that players will be four-year four players. I think that um, you know, in a couple of years, when the high school kids come in, uh, when when a coach recruits a player to come to college, very few will be pros. I think the vast majority of high school players ranked in the top hundred will will think that they. You know, are going to be pros and, and go right, go right, and go right into the NBA. The problem is only 60 draft spots unless they change the rules. I think this year something like 300 players will will put their names in for the draft for 60 spots, and this could be a lot of players who've gotten really bad advice from people who don't understand the business internally or don't have the honesty or the courage to tell a player, "Hey, go back to school." We represented a player about four or five years ago named Malcolm Brogdon, who was the rookie of the year in, I think, 16. And he came to me and asked me to represent him. He was a senior at Virginia. He graduated. And I told him that we wouldn't represent him because he wouldn't be drafted. And then go back to school and get a master's degree at UVA, which is an extremely valuable piece of paper for the rest of your life. And he came out as a 50-year senior and, and won the rookie of the year. You know, I think I think most players at a very young age get really bad advice by people who sometimes mean well, 
but really don't have a good understanding of the dynamics of the business. And so they get very, very bad advice. I was, I was talking about this last night. A very good friend of mine here in Washington went to Duke named Mark Allery. His daughter was the fifth pick in the WNBA draft this year from Princeton. And we were talking about a particular agent here in Washington who would advise three college players about 10 years ago. One was Shablock Randolph from Duke. One was uh, John Gilcrest from Maryland. I can't recall a third. He advised them all to leave school early, and none of them got drafted. And I said to Mark, if I were a parent and an agent had misadvised my son like that and destroyed their career, I, you know, I'd probably want to kill him, you know, hire someone, you know, for a contract part or something like that. I mean, and there's no accountability for that. You know, how do you, how do you unscramble the eggs, you know, when you've created a mess like that? And it's, that's, that's one of the reasons that it's so unfortunate the union hasn't done a better job of screening people to become to become agents. It's, it's just unfortunate. Um, not unfortunate for me. I've had a great career, but it's unfortunate for the kids because there's so much on the line for these young players, and they get so such bad advice for, for, from so many people um, that it, it's just unfortunate. Well, David, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and your insight here today. Uh, maybe down the road we'll catch up after you sign that first Syracuse guy. We've got to get one Syracuse guy with David Falk yeah. before it's all said and done, right? Well, listen, I have the most important thing at Syracuse, which is uh, you know, which is my school. I'm very proud of that. Um, when I go up and teach you know, a few times a year, I go up for the board of trustees meeting. It's, it's an incredibly... Um, it's an incredible honor to have your name on a school. As I said earlier, it's my way of honoring my mom. So I, I, you know, I love my relationship with the university, love our friendship with the chancellor, uh, love my relationship with Dean Diane Murphy. Give her a little shout out. I mean, the people in the program, you know, have been amazing to me. Um, you know, it's it's beyond belief that Michael Veeley, literally in a dozen years from scratch, created the number one program in the country in, in, in the field. And um, there are enough words in the English language for me to thank him and his, his passion and his insight, his relationship with the students and the professors. You know, it, it's amazing, his relationship with the board of advisors. So it's um, something I'm very proud of. I think something the university is very proud of. And, uh, you know, it's only it's only getting better. Thanks so much for listening to the Syracuse Sports Podcast. Have you subscribed? You should. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, find Syracuse.com podcasts. And subscribe because you get this podcast, the Syracuse Sports Podcast, including our guest today. Thanks to him once again, David Falk, for joining us. But if you miss conversations with former Syracuse football player Cam Lynch, former Syracuse basketball player Elijah Hughes, looking to make his way into the NBA, those are some recent episodes. The Syracuse Football Podcast with Stephen Bailey. Don't forget about our Buffalo Bills podcast. With the NFL Draft coming up, Matt Perino will give you all the insight and analysis you need of what the Bills need to do in the draft and eventually what the Bills actually do in the 2020 NFL Draft. Now I'll be listening as a Bills fan. Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, find Syracuse.com podcasts and the Buffalo Bills podcast. Thanks for listening. My name is Brent Dads. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time.